When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. These four brothers are our last hope to save the world. Cool. No, not cool. A bit cool. You can't stop us. What? Ice Cube. John Cena, Seth Rogen. What you looking at, bro? Yeah, bro, what you looking at? Jackie Chan, Rose Byrne, Post Malone, Maya Rudolph, and Paul Rudd. I like his vibe. I like your vibe. I like your vibe. I like, I like your, your vibe. vibe. Now playing in theaters. Rated PG. Revely, revely, donks. Look at us now, tip to tip. This is our life. This is our passion. That's the spirit we bring to this show. I'm Luke Thomas. I'm Brian Campbell. This is Morning Combat. Oh, it's the ninth of the month. Cash your checks and get up. Hi, everybody. It is time for episode whatever number it is of Morning Combat. I am merely one half of your hosting duo. My name is Luke Thomas. We'll bring in the other half here in just a moment. But thank you for joining me on this wonderful Wednesday in this great month of August of 2023 lots to do today on the docket let's see we've got a ufc vegas 78 this weekend let's see we also have bellator 298 on friday bellator card might be better actually i'm gonna say it outright the bellator card is better than the ufc card which doesn't happen very often but when it does it's worth paying attention we'll talk about both of those cards uh, as well as we now have an official ufc 293 main event and a whole lot more so first things first Hey, thumbs up on the video if you're watching. I appreciate you watching on a weekend where I know, or a week I should say, rather, where BC is on vacations. But if you stuck around for uh, MK just the same, we appreciate it. And uh, subscribe. It's free. doesn't cost you anything, right? Easy to do. No problems there, right? So please do that. Uh, as well, quick reminder for everyone, Showtime.com is the label that pays. Showtime.com, get a 30-day free trial. If you're lucky, you can keep it. If not, you can bounce. You can go to Showtime.com for more information. Morningcombat.store. Morningcombat.store is going to be the place to be for all of your merch. And then, of course, if you want to reach the show, you can do so at, at the uh, morningcombat at gmail.com. One quick reminder before we get going here, as I lose my picture and I can't see anything on the other side of the screen. Here we go. That's the got it better now. Uh, guys, got to tell you about our next partner, AG1, the daily foundational nutritional supplement that supports whole body health. I literally drink it every single day. BC does as well. I gave AG1 a try because I was tired of taking so many supplements, and I wanted a single solution, just one, to, for uh, supporting my entire body and nutritional basis every single day. I'm giving my body the nutrition that it craves and needs, and I'm covering all of my bases. All great athletes have one thing in common. They're not Luke Thomas, but on top of that, they take great care of their bodies, right? A huge part of that starts with optimizing whole body health. With every daily serving, 
I'm setting myself up for success with 75, count them, high quality ingredients that give me the key daily nutrients and support energy, focus, strength, and clarity. It's a micro habit, really, that delivers macro benefits and helps just about everybody take great care of their health every single day. So if a comprehensive solution is what you need from your supplement routine, then try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Go, go. Here's how you can do everything you need to do. Go to drinkag1.com. You can see the ad on the screen. Drinkag1.com slash morning combat. Drinkag1.com slash morning combat. Of course, if you're listening on the audio platform, that's AG and then the number one. Last but not least, let me remind everyone here, top of the show, we need a favor from all the MK viewers. Now more than ever, Truly, I mean that. Now more than ever, we need you guys to vote in the World MMA Awards. Morning Combat is up yet again for best MMA programming. Very easy to do. If you're watching on YouTube, you can put your phone up against the screen right there for the QR code. It'll take you where you need to go. But if you're listening, it's very easy as well. WorldMMAawards.com. WorldMMAawards.com. And vote for Morning Combat Best MMA programming. Now, I mentioned that, of course, I'm not hosting today solo. I have a gentleman from the Great White North who's going to co-host here with me today. You know him from all of his great work at TSN, and it just so happens that he is also nominated for the World MMA Awards, not for MMA programming, but for Journalist of the Year. It is my friend. It is your friend. It is Aaron Bronstetter. Hi, Abron. How you doing, bro? I'm good. Hey, I got to say, that World MMA Awards sounds like the plea for votes sounded like a PBS telethon. You're like, more than ever, we need you to call 1-800-667-8454 right now and donate I'm telling to the you, cause. Listen, if people only knew, if people only knew the stuff we were dealing with, I think they would understand why the pitch is so heavy. But they should also know uh, for you as well, you are nominated for Journalist of the Year. I forget who else is nominated this year. But, you know, I'm sure Ariel's on the list as well. Who else is on that list? Do you know? Yeah, it's myself, Ariel, uh, John Morgan, uh, Nolan King, and uh, mm. who's the other person that I'm forgetting right now, which I should not be forgetting? Oh, Mark Raimondi. The, the great uh, Mark Raimondi is the, uh, the last person I'm well, forgetting. I mean, so, yeah, you know the five of us. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it's, uh, you know, every vote counts, as, uh, as Luke said. You know, it's never been more important to vote for the World MMA Awards than it is right now. So. Uh, make sure that you open another tab on your browser. You you click vote for Morning Combat and for Aaron Bronstetter because there are mouths to feed in this uh, mixed martial arts journalism business that we we must take care of. All right, we have a lot to get to here today, Aaron. Now, topic number one, we're not going to get to right this second. UFC Vegas 78. Real quickly, I want to call an audible here on air, if I may. Of course, vote for Aaron if uh, for the World MMA Awards. Vote for Morning Combat. We appreciate that when you do. Real quickly, you watched Contender Series last night as I did. Man, I got to tell you, I got to tell you, I'm not sure what the point of the show is anymore. Now, hear me clearly. Did I see some talent on there, particularly I thought in the first fight between Diaz and Borjas, where uh, that was a great fight between two skilled competitors and Borjas in the end got the the fair nod in my judge judgment. And there were some other ones as well. Talbot was obviously a guy who a lot of folks had their eye on. I, I want to be clear. Did I watch it and enjoy the fights in many cases? Yes. Did I see guys who I thought were deserving of UFC contracts? Absolutely. But they gave a contract to all five winners. And I got to say, I do not in any way believe that all five winners 
were deserving of a contract. And of course, when I say deserving, Aaron, I mean like, you know, ready to take the next step at the next level, not like I'm angry at them or something. What is the point of the show if they're just going to give contracts to everyone when they win? Yeah, it seems like it's become more of a play-in game than anything else as of late with the Contender Series, like win and you're in, which I don't necessarily have a problem with. I mean, if they, it feels like every year it's almost become like an audit of the roster and they want to clear out some of uh, the bloat and bring in new talent at perhaps lower contracts and entry-level contracts. But at the same time, I kind of do disagree with you that they don't all deserve to be there. I think that all of them are UFC caliber fighters based on what UFC caliber is these days. That's not necessarily a bad thing. We've got probably close to, I think Dana said there were 656 fighters uh, under contract. So they have cards to fill and they have fighters that are looking to compete. And I think Kyle Machado, who I, I believe is probably the fighter that most people um, thought shouldn't have gotten the contract of the five that did yesterday. I mean, he deserves to be in the UFC. He's a champion at BFL, which is one of the top Canadian promotions right now based in Canada. And I've seen what this guy can do. And I think that, you know, he had an opponent that he was not going to do really any better against. He, this was a guy that was, like Dana White said, on a, a long win streak. I think it was an 11-fight win streak, who basically just stood there and took everything that Kyle Machado threw at him. Didn't really fire back. Obviously, he's got a good chin because Kyle was hitting him with shots. And I, I still think Kyle Machado can beat some UFC caliber heavy, heavyweights. So I believe they all belong in the UFC. But did they earn their place based on their performance yesterday? I would agree with you and say that some of them perhaps did not. Yeah, I don't know, man. I don't know. I didn't see anything that was at the it was a heavyweight bout the way you're talking about when Machado won. I, I would say a little more seasoning, even the one like, for example, even the Talbot kid who was obviously very skilled and very good, a little bit more seasoning. Right. Just it's not like he's not like it's not like he couldn't go and win. But are you setting yourself up for the best amount or the most amount of success at this moment if you take that deal right now? And of course, you know, you shouldn't be fighting in the contender series if there's any questions about that. But I'm just saying um from the outside looking in, you know, if you're just going to chuck contracts at winners, the, the original show, like only like 50% got in like uh, of the winners. And now it's like, I think for the first two, 80%. Seasons, yeah. 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 They've just kind of it's changed. A lot and, listen, and, if the, and if the, and if the point of the show has changed, then that's okay too. Right. Because it's their show. They can do what they want with it. And if they're still putting on mostly good fights, I'm going to mostly watch and mostly have a good time. No problem. But the commentators keep talking about it. Like, well, we don't know. I mean, it's really, you know, it's dicey whether or not they're going to get in. I'm like, doesn't seem that dicey. Got to tell you, seems like it's pretty straightforward at this point. That's all I'm saying. Well, especially with a precedent like yesterday. I mean, last year on the first episode, only Joe Pfeiffer got a contract because the other fights were somewhat underwhelming, I guess. Um, so. Yeah. I think it's going to be episode by episode. And if you look at the entire UFC roster, you often see this in the war room. They have these little blue dots next to the fighters that are on contender, you know, we're on contender series. If you watch, if you didn't know, now you know those Dana White clips that he puts out every week about kind of under the radar fights. You'll see how many different blue dots are on each particular show's rundown. I'd wager a guess right now that um, 60 to 70% of the roster is made up of contender series alums. And if you look at, how many of them have won titles? Like you can count them on one finger, one. I mean, so is this a good way for them to build future champions? I don't really know. I'm curious to see in, I'd say five years, we'll have a good, I guess, understanding of where a lot of the UFC champions are coming from because this show is what, seven seasons in. And if we look at it, maybe even in three years, we'll have a 10 year kind of sample size of all of these fighters. And if they make up 70, 75% of the roster in three years time, and only like three or four have become champions, maybe 
you're better off just being a really great prospect and get, getting signed uh, from your, for your accolades outside of the Contender Series rather than being on the Contender Series. But I think we still kind of have yet to have, I guess, clear evidence that that would be the case. All right, fair enough. Well, again, episode one was last night. I did see some good fights. I did see some guys who were deserving of contracts. So congrats to all the winners just the same. We'll kind of keep up with it as the season rolls on. But let's get into topic number one, if we can here, uh, Abron, which, of course, is going to be UFC Vegas 78. We are back at the apex for better or for worse, depending on one's perspective on that. And we're led with an interesting and kind of, I don't know what, I'm going to ask you to describe the main event for me. For folks who don't know, Vicente Luque is back in action, of course, at 170, taking on perennial, I mean, just an absolute war horse is really, I think, the best way to describe this guy, Rafael Dos Anjos. How would you character, before we get into the fight itself and X's and O's and everything else, Mr. Bronstetter, characterize this fight for me. Characterize where these fighters are at. How would you describe it? Well, this is a great main event. And the reason why I put it that way is because it's kind of can't miss. And it's two guys that have been in main events prior to this. So you can't really take away their, their credentials in that regard. But it's also one that doesn't really have a, a big degree of, you know, substantive effect on the, I guess, division itself. Like, we're not going to see either of these guys emerge as a champion, but in, in my opinion, in the future. Um, and that's not a knock on them. I just think that we've kind of seen what their ceiling is. And at this point, RDA, I believe, is 38, 39 years old. But at the same time, we've got two guys that we know are going to deliver. That you can, you know, if you're going to bet on a fight being a great fight, you know that Vicente Luque and RDA are two of the guys that you can count on for that. So that's why I like it as kind of a five-round apex main event. You know, not every main event has to have uh, a really a big impact on the title picture necessarily. I think last weekend we saw with Sandhagen being in that main event, that, that has an impact on the title picture. This one I don't believe does, but at the same time, I think that if you're looking for like an action-packed main event, this is a really solid five-round fight to have. Now, there are a lot of interesting things to talk about coming into this. One is Vicente Luque and his health. He had a, apparently had a brain bleed, I believe it was, after his last fight or a hemorrhage of some sort that he has now mm -hmm. cleared to fight again, but that is certainly a big red flag when it comes to uh, allowing a fighter to compete. Now, I'm not a medical professional, and I'm not going to you know, step in the way of somebody competing if there are medical professionals that say, okay, it's safe for you to resume your career. That is a little bit alarming, though, that that is something that happened with Vicente Luca, a very nice guy who I've really enjoyed covering all these years uh, and really a class act in this sport. Um, that, that does ring some alarms, but again, I, I'm not a medical professional. I can't really comment on that end of things. Now, RDA, on the flip side, I mean, this guy's just a marvel of the sport. When you think of how long RDA has been a relevant kind of top 10 fighter for, that kind of longevity is really, really difficult to achieve in the sport. Now, I think at this point, he's kind of been relegated to a, a gatekeeper of sorts, somebody who's going to uh, be either in this kind of an exciting fight against Luque, where you can put him comfortably in a main event and he's going to deliver for you, or somebody who's going to face some up-and-comers uh, in the sport, although I think RDA has kind of voiced that he's not really about that anymore. He kind of just wants to have fun fights from here on out. Um, but just to see RDA's longevity in the sport is really something to behold that he still is this quality of a fighter after all of these years. So I have a few different thoughts on this. I think that's a good way to put it. It's not, you know, it's not the most prestigious main event the UFC could make, but it's a quality one, I think. Let's start on the Luke side for me. I'm going to tell you about some of my apprehensions. And I'm just like you. We talked about this with when BC was on the show about this brain bleed issue that Vicente Luque had. And, of course, he had to get uh, a, a series of different um, medical professionals with overlapping but different 
core competencies related to the brain to evaluate him, clear him, independent of one another. You know, he had, he had to really go through this process. Then there was a person at the commission who had to look at the data, what the doctors were recommending, and then come to a conclusion here. I'm certainly in no position to say one way or the other whether or not that they have done their job adequately or if a brain bleed is automatically disqualifying. I simply have no idea. But I think what would stand out to me, Aaron, is two things. One, you know, do guys get sanctioned for fights on occasion when they absolutely should not, including in jurisdictions with a lot of experience? Yes, of course, it has happened numerous times. So just because he got cleared doesn't mean he's okay. And of course, the opposite is true. I'm, I'm merely saying that because a doctor said so, it doesn't mean you should stop worrying, I think. I think the second part that I would say here about the situation for Luque is, or, or, yeah, sticking with Luque, is he doesn't look by any means done. Like, he doesn't look washed, although that fight against Neil was tough. But, like, here's just the reality about fighters. Fighters will absolutely, pro fighters, will take absurd physical risks in order to achieve their health. I remember a conversation I had with Anthony Smith. He had a hand injury some years ago. I think this was pre-pandemic. I want to say around 2019 or so. And he was telling me that, you know, the doctor was almost joking, like, hey, we could fix this if you just wanted to remove, you know, two different fingers. Like, it wasn't in any way suggesting it seriously. And Anthony Smith was, like, all on board with the idea of losing a couple of fingers. He could still punch with his dominant knuckles in his hand if it meant fixing the issue. Like, the amount of risk and the amount of quality of life they're willing to sacrifice for these things they will go well beyond what the average person even considers possible, much less acceptable. So, Aaron, I guess my question to you is, again, you and I, we're, we, we didn't go to medical school. I have no idea what the situation is. But do you share some of my concerns for Luque, who you point out, a gentleman of the game, trilingual, English, Spanish, and Portuguese, fluent in all three, a decorated talent. I wish nothing for the best for him. But I would just be lying if I said I, he's going into this contest and I'm worry-free. Well, I mean, at the best of times, I'm not really worry-free for a lot of these fighters. I mean, we know what these guys go through, um, not not just in the cage for us to see, but behind the scenes, um, the, the kind of damage that they put on their bodies over the course of their career. I mean, we, we have to have some apprehension in general uh, at times about what these athletes are willing to do. And that's what kind of what makes the sport so exciting is that we they do things that, you know, 99% of human beings would never do. Um, you know, they're, they're basically daredevils in some regard, right? I mean, what, what they're willing to put themselves through in order to entertain us and in order to become champions uh, on their side of things is just, it's really what makes this, and really combat sports as a whole, such a special thing um, and such an intriguing thing. So, I mean, I, I do share a lot of your apprehensions, but at the same time, I don't really know, right? I mean, that's the, the tough part about it and why it's so hard for me to comment on it because if, if he has medical professionals that are willing to clear him to do this, that's the commission and the UFC taking the risk, right? Like on top of, of course, Luque himself taking a massive risk. And I think that obviously if he wanted to walk away and say, I, you know, I'm concerned about this, my family's concerned about this, nobody would blame him. But he's also, you know, a lot of people look at Luque and think he's been around for a long time. He's only 31 years old. I mean, he's a guy who's currently in his athletic prime. So to get somebody in their athletic prime who after, you know, he, he lost to Bilal Muhammad, lost to Jeff Neal, but prior to that was on a four-fight win streak, you know, it's it's going to be very difficult for anybody to convince an athlete who still is in championship years, really. Again, 31 to 35 really seems to be the peak years for a combat sports athlete in mixed martial arts. You know, I, I think it's going to be very difficult to convince Luke a to walk away, regardless of what the circumstances is. Like like you mentioned with Anthony Smith, it's a lot of these fighters, 
uh, will they always believe that they can be champions. Otherwise, they shouldn't be competing, right? Like, I, I think that that's one of the ways that they quantify themselves as human beings as well. This is all they know. So it's very difficult for someone like you or I to say, well, you know, it's time for him to pull the plug on this career of his because uh, of, of these concerns. If there are, you know, medical professionals that are willing to, to you know, risk their reputations, the commission is willing to risk their reputation uh, in, in order to, uh, you know, give him the green light, I think we kind of just have to be kind of cautiously optimistic about the fact that they're looking out for his best interests. Yeah, fair enough. On the RDA side, what really stands out to me is the point you made. A lot of folks don't really realize this. Frankie Edgar was, for a while, I'm not sure how long ago RDA passed this, but he was sort of known for having an extraordinary amount of octagon time. Well, the guy who's got the most amount of octagon time total in UFC history is RDA. He's got over eight hours, eight hours of time spent in the octagon, an absolutely absurd amount. This guy's durability across two weight classes is insane. Never, ever, ever ducked a challenge. Now, again, at 38, 39 years old, he is specifically, let me look here, 38. He'll be 39 in October. Uh, but this is a guy who has fought every different kind of opponent, every different size that was even remotely possible in his, you know, general vicinity of of weight. And you know, what's kind of interesting here is, uh, Aaron, he's, well, let's see, he's three and one in his last four. He has wins over Paul Felder, now that goes back to 2020. He has the win over Moicano in 2022. He did lose to Vaziv. He got stopped in the fifth round in that one, but then rallied again and came back against Brian Barbarena. I saw you had put on Twitter, like, you know, was there a question about whether or not he should be in the Hall of Fame? I'm a little more, I'm a little more stringent with my particular uh, level of what I think is Hall of Fame worthy. However, what I can say is very clearly, certainly one of the best fighters uh, I have been able to cover like live during the course of my career. No doubt about that. And also, I cannot overstate this. His durability, most guys, who have been through what he's been through, including in the training room, including everything else you could imagine, sparring, blah, 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 for him to still be this good, this late, after all the stuff he's been through, he is an absolute marvel in that regard. Most people would absolutely not be this competitive given what he's been through. I'm, I'm guessing that you share my assessment. Yeah, I mean, he's like an Iron Man of this sport, like a Cal Ripken Jr., so to speak, of MMA. I mean, this guy is always game. He's He's been a great fighter for like 15 years, which is really difficult to accomplish in mixed martial arts. Where you're talking about somebody who's going to continue to do main, you know, compete in main events, be in those main events and not be kind of cannon fodder late in his career. I don't think RDA is is at that point. I still think that he's competitive against the likes of, of Vicente Luque. And I think the odds would indicate that as well. So. You know, RDA, to me, RDA is a, a surefire Hall of Famer. I think that a lot of the Hall of Fame discussion kind of is based on what sport you liked growing up. Like, I was a basketball fan, and the basketball, you know, admission to the Hall of Fame was like you pay 20 bucks and you can walk into Springfield and you're good. Um, I think that people that are fans of hockey, it's kind of the same way. You know, getting into the Hockey Hall of Fame, it, it was a little bit easier. And then there are the people that were fans of baseball and football that have, a, you know, I guess, higher standards for what it means to be in the Hall of Fame. Now, ultimately, the UFC Hall of Fame is kind of determined uh, by, you know, Dana White and those around him. It's not really a, a balloting system where media votes like we, we see in these other hall, hall of Fame. So it's kind of, sub, you know, subjective as to who gets into the Hall of Fame in general. But if there was like an MMA Hall of Fame, if that opened up and uh, we kind of saw what the credentials were needed and it was MMA across the board, like global MMA, 
you know, does RDA get in? I don't know. I, I think, again, you'd have to see what kind of standards are being upheld. But in my opinion, like this guy should be absolutely in the UFC Hall of Fame based on what we've seen, uh, you know, has has gotten people in in the past. Like, I think he has had a better career than Cowboy Cerrone, no disrespect to him. I mean, RDA defended the title against Cowboy Cerrone. So I, I think that you just have to look at the career of RDA and really, again, he's, he's a marvel. He's somebody that you, you don't really have a lot of comparisons you mentioned the likes of frankie edgar who's i think a surefire hall of famer as well like that that's kind of a, a good kind of comparison for rda and i think that rda's late career has looked better than than what frankie edgar's yeah i guess will ultimately look like in hindsight yeah and there's no doubt it's gonna look better than in his i mean he but you know he went through the ringer as well uh you know it's not like this guy <laughs> anybody who's got that much octagon time if you got over seven hours of octagon time you're just going to come out the other end a different person it's not really possible to maintain who you are physically through all of that but let's get to the x's and o's here a little bit if we can vicente luque known a bit as a boxer right 76 inch reach just 70 inches for rda now of course he has fought longer and bigger opponents at basically almost at any time he was fighting at 170 but including in cases like a 155 against Donald Cerrone, and he won that way, that that bout as well. Vicente Luque, here's the problem that sort of stands out to me. He lands 5.49 strikes per minute, which is pretty high. He absorbs an even higher amount, 5.51. In terms of takedown accuracy, 50%, 61% takedown defensive rate. Uh, but, you know, he doesn't really go for a lot of takedowns. RDA does. So it looks to me would not be fair in any way to really call this striker versus grappler, nor am I doing that. But I would say... While Vicente Luque is hittable on the feet, and one again, who never, who knows with how durable he's going to be with his brain condition, or maybe there's no difference at all. I really don't know. But I guess what I would say is, if I'm RDA, I'm going to imagine I'm going to be hunting the takedown on this one and looking to control the guy at least for significant portions of the round. It just seems like that's a more well-rounded part of his game. He doesn't have to worry about the reach in situations like that, and we know he can win doing that and has in the past. To what extent do you agree or disagree? Well, I, I disagree in one regard, which is Vicente Luque, when it comes to taking him down, I mean, do so at your peril, because he's got perhaps the best darts choke that we've ever seen in the UFC. I mean, this is a guy that's been able to sink that darts choke in countless times with fighters that have tried to take him down. So again, I mean, you can take him down and you might be able to hold him there. And we've seen fighters do that, but do so at your peril because he's sneaky and he's very opportunistic. One of the most opportunistic fighters I think we've seen in the UFC because he's always able to find a way when somebody presents him with something. He's, he's got a keen eye for openings. Um, so I, I do think that RDA kind of needs to mix it up. I think on the feet, because of what you mentioned, that, that kind of ratio of strikes absorbed to strikes um, landed for Luque, maybe RDA can hang with him in that regard. Luque has shown that he's got good power, but it's not really necessarily proven to be real fight ending power is more death by a thousand paper cuts at times he's, he's a great volume striker the question i think that you mentioned off the top is the durability and that's where now with luke after suffering his first stoppage loss we start to look at it and think well is that durability gone you know has has have the days of vicente luke having the ability to go punch for punch with his opponent and take one and a half to give one kind of thing are those days over? That, that's the big question mark for me going into this fight because RDA is another fighter that, that isn't necessarily a one-punch KO guy. He's a guy that's going to wear you down and grind you down. And I think that's where if RDA kind of mixes it up with both the striking and grappling, that he can find a way to win this using just his fight IQ and savvy. 
at this stage of this of, of their careers, though, who's the better fighter? I'd probably say Luke. I think that Luke right now, again, at age 31, is probably going to be the fighter with you know better speed, better accuracy. Um, those are things that RDA has been known for in the past, but at this stage in his career, does he still have that? That that's those are the things that start to wither away as you continue to compete late in your career. So this is a very close fight, and I think that anybody who's looked to get betting on this, it's a very volatile fight that I would kind of caution you against. Uh, you know, putting putting your hard-earned money on. To be perfectly honest, this is a fight that could go to a decision. This is a fight that could end early. It's one of those ones that just has so many variables that uh, you you have to be wary of going into this one. Yeah, two responses. The first thing I'd say is you're basically right about the nature of how close it is. Our friends at Caesar Sportsbook, they have Vicente Luque as a slight underdog, plus 105 to Rafael Dos Anjos is minus 125. I tend to agree with that a little bit more. If I'm just looking in the data, again, the data doesn't tell you, it doesn't predict the future. It just kind of tells you what happened in the past, obviously. But the data to me, like the, there's the asymmetry in the takedown uh, willingness and then takedown ability for RDA to me is the big differentiator. And I think that could be a problem for Luke. I guess we'll see on Saturday. One never knows for sure. Uh, but uh, there's just some questions about Luke as well. And he could go out there and look amazing, really use that six inch reach advantage, put him at the end of his jab, bust him up along the fence line. And that could be it. And I wouldn't necessarily be surprised. I just think that the, the doubts about Luke, given where he's at, both in his career, coming off that bad loss to Jeff Neal, brain bleed, notwithstanding, uh, and then RDA just kind of being this dude who hangs around, who will re- he's willing to you know play the levels, I suppose, like striking, wrestling, and everything in between. Uh, he can get that done. I don't know if it'll go the distance. That part's a little harder to tell on this one. I guess my question would be, what is the winner rightfully entitled to here? Because we're at an apex main event, right? You beat somebody here. You beat someone with a name. You beat someone that the fans care about in either direction. You're not really close to anything remotely approximating a title shot. And if RDA is right that he just wants to have fun fights remaining, I guess the idea is if he wins, he'll just continue to get something along that order. But if Luke wins, I think he would really try and position this as climbing the ladder to something more significant on route to a title opportunity, right? Because I agree with you at 31 years of age, if he is okay and if he can look good winning this bout, then I guess you just have to kind of put all that stuff behind you and say, hey, if he's doing this the right way and it looks the right way, we're going to treat it the right way. Yeah, it is kind of weird because it's one of those rare instances where the younger fighter who, again, Luke, 31 years old versus a 38-year-old, almost 39-year-old RDA, where we seem to have more questions about the younger fighter, which usually is not the case um, in these circumstances. Now, I think I kind of agree with what you're saying in terms of trajectory. I think RDA, he gets a win, he chugs along, finds another exciting uh, opponent. Maybe he could fight like a Gilbert Burns. I don't know if Gilbert Burns would want to fight kind of that far down and try to get more of a bounce back spot. But um, that, that's, I think, a possibility um, for him if, if he wants to have a fun fight against another kind of uh, solid veteran of the division. And then with Luke, you know, if he gets a win, I think he starts fighting up. And I, I do find myself a little bit concerned that they're going to start using him as somebody to face the kind of shaft cats of the world. I believe they do train together on occasion. So I don't know if that's necessarily a comparison. But uh, Luke is the type of guy that doesn't say no to fights, which, uh, you know, you can be your own worst enemy in those situations. But also, if you win those fights, everybody loves you. So uh, I think that that's where we're going to see the, their particular trajectories after this, this uh, fight plays out. 
All right, let's talk about some of these other contests on the card, and it's just so appropriate that I have my mug here. Shouts to Cub Swanson. Look at that. I don't know if he still sells coffee. I haven't checked in a long time, but he used to, and I will tell you, he he had, he had sourced his from Colombia, and it was excellent. It was really, really good, which I know I'm biased in saying that Colombian coffee is good, but hello, I wouldn't be the only one. Lots of people would back me up and tell you the coffee from Colombia is quite good. Neither here nor there. He takes on Hakeem Duwadu. It's important that we have a Canadian on today's show because Duwadu, of course, Canadian himself. Now, this one to me is maybe one of the more interesting fights on this card for a lot of reasons. Cub Swanson enters this contest, Aaron, sitting at 39 years of age. He'll be 40 in November, if you can believe that. Wow, he's been around forever, it seems like. right? The, you, would, you would think that the guy that Jose Aldo like need in like 10 seconds or whatever it was would be gone from the sport before Jose Aldo. But no, he's still here. He's a tough bastard himself. But he's been very up and down of late, right? So he beats Crone Gracie back in 2019. Then he beats Daniel Pineda in a great fight back in 2020. Loses to Giga Chikadze, who's still, you know, top 15 kind of guy in the weight class. Beats Darren Elkins back in 2021. Loses to Jonathan Martinez, who we know has a fight coming up against Adrian Yanez here soon. He loses, he lost him in 2022. We haven't seen him very much. My point being is he had one fight in 2020. Two fights in 2021, one in 2022, hasn't fought at all this year. You know, obviously, we all know he's coming towards the end of his career. I don't know how soon, but we're probably closer to that than not. Against Hakeem Duwadu, who has been an interesting prospect out of Canada, and I'm not going to call him a letdown. Please understand me. I'm not going to say he's a letdown. But at 32 years of age, coming off of a loss to Julian Arosa, I don't know what the view is from your neck of the woods, Aaron, so I'm hoping you can tell me. And he did have a great win streak for a while that ended in 2020 against Zubaira Tugugov. My point being is, Cub Swanson, old but dangerous still. Duwadu looked like he had a very, very promising future when signed and has done well enough, but I don't know if he's matched exactly the hype that was around him when he got started. Size these two up for me from your perspective. Yeah, kind of a make-or-break fight for both these guys uh, at this point in time. You know, Hakeem Dawadu, I would say, did, I mean, very well by getting into the rankings of one of the toughest divisions in the sport. I mean, it's about all we can ask for for Canadian fighters right now. We only have one fighter that's currently ranked uh, in the UFC at the moment in uh, Jasmine Jazdavicious. But I think that when you look at Hakeem Dawadu, he's been a guy that this is the kind of fight that he typically wins against stand-up fighters that are going to go you know, almost make it into a kickboxing match with him. I think that if Cub mixes it up, that's where it gets a little bit more interesting. But Cub seems to be very happy being in those kind of fights. And that's why I love this matchup for both these guys. This is the kind of matchup that both these guys love to have, where they're going to go toe-to-toe, see what, see who is the, the better, more proficient technical striker, and, uh, you know, may the best man win. I think that's really what this whole fight comes down to at this point in both these men's careers. You know, I think that that's... Um, what makes these guys both dangerous fighters is they are so technically proficient um, on the feet. If Cub does mix it up and maybe goes for a submission here or there, uh, tries to mix in the wrestling, I think that could give Dawadu some problems. But I think, all things considered, this is the kind of fight that Hakeem Dawadu tends to win. Yeah, I would agree in general. By the way, our friends at Caesars have this again. Dawadu at minus 230. Pretty substantial favorite, relatively speaking, for MMA anyway. Cub Swanson, though, not out of it. Plus 190 as an underdog. I think that's probably about right, given where 
both guys are at. I'll just say this. He lost the fight Cub Swanson did against Martinez, but he did score a takedown in that one. And if you look at his stats on this one, Cub Swanson is good for about one takedown and some change per 15 minutes. Again, st- statistically speaking, that would do zero. Like uh, zero t- takedowns attempted per 15 minutes. Takedown accuracy, 0%. <laughs> I'm guessing yeah, I don't that even would know if he's attempted one. Out. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't even know if he's attempted one in the UFC. Obviously, he's defended some with a 65% defensive rate. But that really seems to me to be it here. Like, I don't know what Cub Swanson wants out of this. I think what he probably wants is to prove he can beat some tough guys before the time is really up, something like that. This would certainly qualify in the end. You know, I don't know. Obviously, he made it into the Hall of Fame through the or the fight with him and Korean Superboy made it into the Hall of Fame, which I was really glad to see. I have a lot of I I really like Cub Swanson. He's been a really stand up guy, I think, in his career for the entirety of the time I've been covering him. Um, But I will say if you can't get this one done, it doesn't mean you can't beat guys in the UFC, but it would mean like, what do you want out of the last fight or two or three that you have left? Like, what is really a goal at that point is it just to get a win on your way out or something like that which again i wouldn't want to take from him the opportunity per se but i if you can't beat this guy who's not a pushover it's not my point i'm just saying if you can't beat him what would you want from the experience i'd be curious to know you know yeah and it seems like cub checked the uh bantamweight division off of his bucket list he did that and was unsuccessful against martinez but I think you're. I think he's probably in it just for the love of the game now. I mean, Cub Swanson yeah. and fighting are just so synonymous with one another that I feel like he's not looking to exit the sport. I think he's having fun now. He's he's fighting these veteran, um, you know, these fights in, in the veteran stage of his career that are exciting fights for him to get him out of bed. And I think this fight with Dawudu is one of those fights. I think that this is just stylistically the kind of fa- fight that uh, Cub Swanson has done well historically in. But I, I think that Dawudu at this stage of his career is probably you know, rightfully favored, like you mentioned with those odds, I think that he he should be favored here and probably will win this fight um, against Cub Swanson. But at the same time, Cub Swanson as an underdog has always delivered. He's He's been one of those guys that you can't sleep on. And as soon as everybody starts to sleep on Cub Swanson, he comes out of hibernation and uh, shows everybody what he's about. So let's see uh, how this one plays out. I'm excited for this one because I think that both of these are uh, two super exciting fighters to watch, great stand-up uh, practitioners and um, you know, Hakeem Dawoodoo really needs a win. He needs to bounce back here. He was supposed to fight back in uh, in June in Vancouver. Uh, had to pull out due to injury. And I think that this is a, a solid matchup for him to uh, to get things back on, on track and see where he's at in his career right now. Yeah, and also, like, to the point you raised earlier, it's not that, Mar- it's not, excuse me, it's not that Swanson can't or won't go for a takedown, but he probably won't go for that many. Again, one per 15 minutes, so that's not a ton. He is likely to accommodate Dawoodoo on the feet. He is likely to accommodate him. And if that kind of an opponent nearing 40, although still tough and very heavy handed, if you can't beat a guy like that, there would be some big questions at 32 years of age about like what you can do. Uh, I guess we'll see. I will tell you, you know what fight I really love on this card? Uh, how about Chris Dawkins going down to 205, taking on Khalil Roundtree Jr. Khalil Roundtree Jr., for folks who aren't paying attention, Riding a three-fight winning streak. Now, it dates all the way back to 2021 due to like various forms of inactivity. He beat Modestus Bukowskis in 2021. Then he had two wins in 2022, one over Carl Roberson, who he just beat the absolute breaks off of. That one was ugly. And then he beat Dustin Jacoby via split. Here comes Chris Dawkins, who probably should have been at 205 some time ago. I guess we'll really look and see what he's got. But he's riding a three-fight losing streak 
Now, he didn't lose to chumps, Aaron. He lost to Derek Lewis. Okay, you know, that's going to happen. He lost to Curtis Blades. Again, that's going to happen too. And then he lost to Jarzinho Rosenstrike, who is not necessarily the best heavyweight, but given his kickboxing background and his punching accuracy, is going to be a tough guy to just strike it out with. So he made a switch. He goes down to 205. The odds, Aaron, have our friends Chris Dawkins uh, at friend Chris Dawkins at plus 160. They've got Roundtree at minus 190. I think that's about right. Tell me what you're expecting to see from either guy in this contest. Well, it's hard to say with Chris Dawkins because this is his first fight at light heavyweight in the UFC. I think he fought at light heavyweight previously in the regional scene, but um, I'm very curious to see how he fights against somebody like Khalil Roundtree because. The reason you get out of the heavyweight division, and uh, I was listening to the Comey Event podcast, and they kind of pointed this out, is you, you want to get away from those precision power strikers that are, are you know, going to be able to put you out. And that's kind of what Khalil Roundtree Jr. is. So he's moving down a division, but he's still getting that same type of fighter that's going to stand and go toe-to-toe with you. But uh, you mentioned Chris Dawkins' losses are against kind of elite heavyweights. His career trajectory has been kind of similar to like a Cynthia Calvillo, where you start off really hot, you go, go on a streak, you get into these main event spots and then suddenly, you know, things start going poorly for you. Um, I'd like to see what he can do at light heavyweight, but it's hard to really know. Like, it's hard to project how this fight's going to go without seeing how Chris Dawkins looks at light heavyweight in this stage of his career. I think from a matchup standpoint, uh, you've got two really, really good strikers. I think Dawkins is a phenomenal boxer. And uh, you look at the, the Muay Thai and, and just well-rounded overall striking skills of Khalil Roundtree Jr. This is one of those matchups that is kind of like, a no-brainer in terms of a stylistic matchup that's going to deliver. Uh, and that, that's what I'm curious to see here. And, and Doc is also a solid grappler that hasn't had to use his grappling in, in MMA, but he talks about how much he, how much time he spends on his grappling. So does, do we start to see kind of the, the new version of Chris Dawkins maybe utilize that part of his game? I, I think a good example is this past weekend, we saw Tanner Bozer get his first win at light heavyweight. Very, very similar type of heavyweight to Chris Dawkins, a guy that weighs in at 230, 235, that can make it down to 205 um, in a fairly healthy fashion. So uh, I'm curious to see how he looks. I think he's going to look very similar to what we saw from Bozer. Good volume, good boxing. Um, but I don't know if Khalil Roundtree Jr. can be compared to somebody like Alexa Kamer, uh, who just lost that fight. I think that Roundtree's a lot more seasoned and has better striking and better power striking. Uh, has not been an easy out for anybody in this light heavyweight division. So uh, I'm I'm very eager to see what Chris Dawkins brings to the table in his new 205-pound uh, frame. All right, we have a visitor because I failed to lock my door. So why don't you say hi real quick? Hi. Hi, Tookster. <laughs> How are you? She you know, my kids you. are away she at a cottage right now, so the hi. only interruption I'll get is my dog, who doesn't come down to the basement because she's 14 years old and washed and can't get down the stairs. So I, I don't think we're yeah. going to have a lot of interruptions unless somebody walks in front of our house and then all bets are off. Is your dog named Brian Campbell? I'm, seriously, I mean, I just can't get down the stairs, wash. That sounds just like him. Maybe more, I'm, I'm That's working. That's actually my dog's, so name. My dog's name is Brian Campbell, actually. <laughs> we can, I have to work, so I have to let you go. But you want to say hi to everybody? Hi, everybody. Okay, and what's your favorite Dr. Seuss book? Uh, Cat in the Hat. Cat in the Hat. Okay, me and more. Well, like the Cat in the Hat, you got to leave, okay? A yes, classic. a classic. He's right. You got to go, okay, baby girl? I'm working, all right? All right, I love you. Go ahead. Go watch yeah. Encanto, have some fun. Yes. Keep, let, let, let Daddy have his, his, uh, his workspace, you know? Yeah, sorry you about that. you got to get one you of those like, padlocks on the door. Yeah, you don't lock your door as a parent. Bad things happen. I've noticed that. I've noticed that. Uh, so I'm sorry, I was a little distracted from what you had said there. The only thing I would add uh, on top of this is if 
I wouldn't close like you. I wouldn't close the door on Dacus returning to heavyweight and then finding, you know, some more success. To me, it was like maybe some of the approaches he had, or like the you know he the level he was at by the time he was fighting those guys. That was those, even those were guys who have all, you know, fought elite of the division, and maybe he wasn't ready for that at that point in time. We'll see when he goes back. For Khalil Roundtree Jr., he just seems to be like a reformed person in many ways. Of course, he had the reformation and the weight loss that brought him into MMA. And then he had some ups and some downs, but the last three fights to me have been like, he's got, I won't say reckless abandon, but I'll say like angry purpose, almost something like that. Something where he can fight a little bit recklessly, but it's, it's still in general more controlled than not. And it's mean. He has turned into something of like, and I say this complimentarily, it's a, he's turned into like a mean fighter. And in many ways, I think that has elevated or at a bare minimum slightly changed his fortunes that brought him to this position to begin with. I love to see it. You know what? He lives in New York sometime for part, part of the year, Khalil Roundtree Jr. He'd be a great RSD guest for you guys because he's yeah. so interesting to speak with. He's just a really, he's kind of like a renaissance man. I love speaking with Khalil. I'm speaking with him today, actually. And um, it's somewhat, it seeped into my subconscious, I think, because I had a dream where I was interviewing him. And I asked him where he's training. He said he was training in Toronto. And I asked him if he wanted to go record shopping with me. And he just wasn't interested. But uh, that, that, was, that was the dream I had last night. It's coming back to me right now as we talk about Khalil Roundtree Jr. But I think he'd make a great RSD guest for you guys, uh, given that he does hang out in New York from time to time. Doesn't do a lot of interviews. But when he does, that kind of format that you guys have would, I think, really open up uh, what Khalil Roundtree Jr.'s uh, journey has been like. It's been a really interesting journey for him. I have to get back to interviewing more fighters. I don't really do it much anymore uh, for a lot of different reasons. But... He is a guy I actually sat down with, I want to say, I don't know, maybe four years ago, something like that, and had a great conversation with him. He is smart. He is thoughtful. He's a different kind of guy. Um, also, I wouldn't go record shopping with you, but only because I don't have a record player. You know what I mean? I don't even know. I've gone with BC I don't know what the fuck BC I would do. BC and I have, uh, have gone to record stores, and uh, we, you know, we have a blast, and we, we like to, uh, to reminisce. All right, very good. Uh, before we move on to the Bellator side of things, any other fight on this card tickle Aaron Bronsteader's fancy? Oh, here, let, let me see. I've got it in front of me here. Um, I've, got, I've got one. I've got one if you don't have one, if I may. And it's, sure, it's, sure. it's, it's not, I'm, I'm not even saying it's the best fight on this card. I'm not picking it for any reason other than I like Terrence McKinney a lot. I think highly of him. I think he's got an interesting personality, and he does have, obviously, some ability. But he just lost on the 15th of July, if my if memory serves. And this was supposed to be a fight between Mike Breeden and Lando Venata. They had to change it to Terrence McKinney. So he's tanking it on short notice. Now, he is favored to win. We should be clear about that. Caesars has Terrence McKinney as a minus 270, Mike Breeden at a plus 220. Okay, fair enough. But I just wonder, you know, a lot of these guys, they lose and they, they don't feel good about how it went because they, you know, they didn't do the stuff they wanted to in training. And it was un, it was unsatisfying to them as an experience in terms of what they could show. And then they want to get one back. And I don't know if that's always the best idea. I could be wrong again. Uh, the odds makers think he is going to win for his sake. I certainly hope he does. Something I've got my eye on for Saturday, I think, at a bare minimum. Yeah, I think that's a very interesting quick turnaround for him. I mean, he lost by submission, so um, didn't take a, a ton of damage in that fight, I would say. Uh, right. So I, I understand him wanting to get that one back. And it's kind of a bad taste in his mouth because if you look at how he lost that fight, there was a lot of tomfoolery going on in terms of cage grabs and things that put him in disadvantageous positions. I think it's one of those situations where a fighter takes that short notice assignment to try to get that bad taste of a loss out of their mouth. A fight that they thought they should have won. He had a very dominant first round uh, in that fight. 
And I think that when you, when you look at this particular matchup, this is kind of a, you know, Mike Breeden was on the contender series and lost in the contender series and somehow was in the UFC. I, I think this is one of those ones where McKinney is looking to, to get an opponent that is going to get him back on the winning track. That's not a disrespect to Mike Breeden or anything like that, but I think that this is one of those matchups where it becomes available and, and he jumps at the opportunity. And I also want to give a shout out to uh, Megan O'Leary. If you uh, listen to her podcast, she did a deep dive on uh, Terrence McKinney's life. And it's just very, very fascinating stuff. Like you hear all about this kind of acid trip that he went on um, where he was uh, arrested. I, I'm sure you've seen the video of him getting tased by police and what he was seeing during that whole um, situation and, and why that kind of acid trip and, and all of that led him to believe that he was put on this earth to become a fighter. It's just really intriguing stuff. So I just want to give Megan a shout out for that incredible podcast. And uh, in terms of uh, a fight on this uh, this card that, is of interest to me. Uh, Yasmin Lucindo against Pollyanna Vienna is an interesting one. I think Lucindo is a really solid prospect and that Pollyanna Vienna, you know, she's very sneaky and opportunistic as well. So I'm curious to see how that one plays out. That's a, a fun matchup. And uh, they just added Damon Blackshear against uh, Jose Johnson. That should just, from a stylistic standpoint, be a fun one to watch. With that in mind, let's switch to topic number two, which I think is the better card of the two over the weekend. Bellator 298. This will be will be at the... Sanford Pentagon in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. The you know you know what the state motto is of South Dakota, the land that time forgot. I, I could be making that up, but I'm pretty sure that's true. Uh, neither here nor there. The Bellator cage will be there for Bellator 298. I really like this card. I mean that quite sincerely. There are so many parts to this that are interesting. We don't have a ton of time, but I want to get to the things that matter the most. Your main event, obviously. Logan Storley taking on Brennan Ward. Logan Storley enters this contest 30 years of age, smack in the middle of his prime in all likelihood, but having just lost to Yaroslav Amosov in the unification rematch that was long anticipated, but of course had a three-fight winning strike, start, uh, winning streak before that. And in fact, the only losses on Logan Storley's record, those two you see there, are in fact to Yaroslav Amosov. By contrast, Brennan Ward, man, what a guy he is. 35 years of age. I interviewed him before his return against Sabaho Masi at Bellator 290. This was a guy who, we all know the story, nearly lost his life to drug addiction, certainly thought he was going to lose his career at a bare minimum to it, found a way back, is legitimately athletic, is legitimately a good wrestler, is legitimately heavy-handed. Waterbury, Connecticut's finest, if I do say so myself, he is riding a three-fight win streak that got going starting in 2022. Now, it's not fair to call this striker versus grappler, right? It's not fair to call. Logan Storley obviously had a decorated background with the University of Minnesota in wrestling. And, uh, excuse me, uh, uh, Brendan Ward does not have that kind of scholastic wrestling background. Nevertheless, Brendan Ward can wrestle. I don't know if he can wrestle as well as Logan Storley. We'll find out on Saturday. But what I do know is he can thump and has a willingness to do it much more so than Logan Storley. I'll pull up the odds here in just a minute. Actually, you know what? Let me look at them now because before I pitch this to you, I want to see where they're at. Yeah. You know what? They've got Logan Storley at my... Well, um, they've got Logan Storley as what I'll consider a substantial favorite in the minus 300 range. Brendan Ward in the plus 200 range. I got to tell you, that's some good action for me on Brendan Ward because he can wrestle. He is a physical powerhouse even at 35 years of age, finally getting full training camps for basically the first time in his career, and as I mentioned before, Storley, not so much a guy who's going to willing, willingly trade with you on the feet. Brennan Ward has zero problem with that. Size these two up for me. Well, I will disagree with one thing you said. I think you can very much fairly characterize this as a striker versus grappler matchup. I kind of hate <laughs> this matchup, to be perfectly honest. 
for Brendan really? Ward because, yeah, I, I think, you know what, I love watching Brendan Ward fight. And I think if you match him up with the right dance partner, he always makes magic. And I don't think this is the right dance partner. I think that Logan Storley is going to take him down and hold him there for as long as humanly possible. And I think he's going to win the fight that way. I think it's going to be very similar to the fight we saw against Michael Benham Page because Logan Storley knows what his best path to victory is, his cre- cleanest path to victory is. And I think he'd be foolish to stand with Brennan Ward, who at any point in this matchup can tag him and take him out and do, do that against anybody in the world. So I think that what we're going to see here for five rounds is Logan Storley do his absolute damnedest to drag Brennan Ward to the ground and make his life as miserable as humanly possible. And that could go on for 25 minutes. So brace yourself for that. But on the flip side, we also have a guy in Brennan Ward who, if he's able to stop those takedowns, can, can drown Logan Storley with his, uh, his striking, make his uh, night very, very short. So that's kind of the interesting dynamic that we have in this particular fight. Um, but from a, from a matchup standpoint, I, I prefer to see Brendan Ward face fighters that are going to stand and go toe-to-toe with him. We've seen that in his three-fight win streak and how exciting that has been. I just feel like this matchup has a, a very high potential of taking the wind out of those sails, and I don't really like that. But if Brendan Ward wants to get to the championship level, he's going to have to be the guy like Logan Storley, who I believe is ranked number two in the division. Um, I'm just being honest with you. I like I, I think that this has the makings of being a very, very unexciting fight that people are going to boo. Although I think Storley is from South Dakota. So at least you put yes, him in a yes. position where if he does take Ward down and hold him there, at least the fans might uh, be a little bit more accepting of that, uh, as opposed to what we saw this past weekend with Corey Sanhagen in his fight with Rob Font. At least he'll have the hometown crowd that might cheer for him to uh, take this fight to the ground. Although MMA fans, I think, regardless of locale, uh, tend to not like that style of fight. Yeah, I mean, he, you're right. He is from South Dakota. That's why they put the Beltor has been there a few times, but they've been there a few times with him. So I think he'll be fine in that regard. I will tell you this much. I understand the feeling around what you're saying, and I, I don't in any way disagree that the fight could go that way. In fact, the odds makers think that it will. So I'm, that's not what I'm, I'm not really disagreeing with that. Rather, having spoken to Brennan Ward before his return to Homasi in the in Bellator 290, dude, he was pretty clear. He's like, I haven't even begun to scratch the surface of what I can do. And he knows time is not on his side. And he just wants to maximize what is possible here. Like that's why I think the I think that's why Bellator granted him this. It's he really wants to see how far he can actually go, no matter what he's done in his life, no matter how much time he's lost. He wants to see what is actually possible against the very best that Bellator has to offer at 170. And to your point, could he fight the Sabaho Masters of the world, talented guys, but guys who are going to slug it out with him? Could he do that and then you know, continue to garner fan acclaim and, 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 and pats on the back? Certainly. Absolutely. No denying it. But he wants to see what he's made of. He wants to see how far he can go. Bellator is granting him that. I got to tell you, I like that story, if I, if I can be honest. I don't know what kind of fight it makes on Saturday, but I'm glad that they're giving him an opportunity to see exactly how far he can push this. Logan Storley, in that sense, Aaron, is a very good test. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. 
And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M. Com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Yeah, and far be it from me to uh, doubt Brendan Ward or bet against Brendan Ward because his story has been absolutely remarkable. Um, again, I just think from a matchup standpoint, I feel like it has the capacity to disappoint people from an entertainment standpoint. But at the same time, it could. if Brendan Ward ends up getting a shocking knockout victory like he's been able to do recently, uh, I think that my my hypothesis here will be firmly turned on its head. So uh, it's a matchup I'm certainly eager to see how it plays out. I mean, that's the, the part about it that I do like is like, can Brendan Ward handle the wrestling of Logan Storley? Can Storley's cardio hold up for five rounds with Brennan Ward, who's going to be trying to take his head off that entire time? Because while we know that Logan Storley does have that kind of cardio, there also is a lot of adrenaline that comes with uh, fighting a guy like Brennan Ward who's walking forward and trying to murder you. And I think that that's kind of what makes this a fun <laughs> matchup from that standpoint. I, you know, that's, that's why I'll be tuning in on Friday to watch this one, because I think that it, it can go a variety of ways. I just think that the... The, the the chances of it, of it being a little bit less entertaining versus very entertaining, I would skew towards less entertaining uh, if, if you're not into seeing somebody have the kind of grappling proficiency that uh, Logan Storley has. Again, if, if you didn't like the fight between Sanhagen and Font this past weekend, I, I think that this is the type of fight where you might see something very similar. Could very well happen. Now, the co-main event, they've got Valentin Moldovsky taking on Steve Mowry. It's a heavyweight fight. Moldovsky, previous interim champion. I don't really love this contest too much. Also, main card, Dalton Rasta taking on Aaron Jeffrey, a fellow Canadian, by the way. Rasta has to be the most jacked dude in MMA, undefeated at 8-0, tremendous talent. Aaron Jeffrey, I think he had that special win more recently over Austin Vanderford, although he lost to John Salter. Uh, but he's trying to get back on the winning track against Dalton Rasta. We'll see. The one that interests me the most on this card, how about this one? The return of James Gallagher. He takes on James Gonzalez. It's a battle for the James, the Strab Animal. Listen to this. Listen to this. For all the things he's been through and for all of the time he's lost, James Gallagher, 26 years old. 26 years old and Very hasn't incredible. fought since 2021 uh, where he lost to Patchy Mix who we now realize is just an absolutely phenomenal talent, one of the best bantamweights in the world, irrespective of any organization. He is now back, taking on a fighter who he should be able to beat, I think is the way I would put it. What kind of expectations do you have for the return of James Gallagher? You know, I'm not really sure what to expect from his return because you mentioned two years off, but at the same time, when you're 24 to 26, you tend to learn a lot of new uh, skills during that time, at least in the uh, you know capacity that he was able to train based on his injury. So I am curious to see how he looks. And I think James Gonzalez is a really tough matchup for him. He's a part of the Sarah Longo camp. And right now, though, those guys are absolutely peaking. You've got uh, that, that Marab win against Piotr Jan. Uh, we saw the uh, the win over uh, Terrence McKinney uh, from, from his teammate as well recently. And... Uh, we have Aljo that's training for Sean O'Malley in, in a week's time. Uh, so all of these guys are in camp training together, and I imagine it's iron sharpens iron. So I think James Gonzalez is somebody who Ray Longo has been very, very vocal about being a, a really solid prospect. Um, 
that, that's why I think this is a great matchup for James Gallagher to return. It's not a guy that's necessarily a household name, but it's somebody who's going to push him. I'm not sure where Gallagher's been training. I know he was training with James Krause, and I imagine that, uh, that that's not the case Ooh, I know. anymore. I mean, it very well could be, because Bellator doesn't have that same kind of uh, thing where that the UFC has against people that train, uh, train there. So I'm not exactly sure where uh, Gallagher has been training. Do you, do you know for this particular fight? Yes. Yeah, Bang Tao, the Hickman brothers uh, out in oh. Thailand. Mm-hmm. Well, there you go. I mean, if you want to have a good training situation, that's that's probably a good one to be in uh, if you <laughs> are uh, James Gallagher. So I'm uh, happy to see what, what this evolution of James Gallagher looks like and uh, excited for this matchup for that reason. And, and it's, it's lined very closely. I'm seeing on FanDuel, it's like minus 128 plus 104 so in favor of Gallagher. So I think we're going to see uh, a very, very closely competitive matchup. And will the injuries have taken a toll? Will there be cage rust? That, that's the kind of thing that we are looking to get the answer to on Friday night. Yeah, and I know, and I know he did a. You know, listen, when you're young and you're influential, and this was the peak of the Conor McGregor era, he, a lot of people are like, oh, he's just borrowing from Conor. Well, dude, most people borrow from other people. Like, you know, I, I, I don't even. Uh, you, you know, you want to be your own person. I understand that, but I, 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 what I mean to say is, I never saw that as disqualifying, and I know a lot of people didn't have a chance to talk to him personally in ways that you and I get the opportunity to do. I'm telling you folks, if you talk to James Gallagher in person, he is one of the like I'm t- fully 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 a guy with humility, understanding, compassion, not the kind of, you know, self-serving identity that he had projected to the world that had pissed off a lot of people. And again, I I don't know what that's supposed to mean to people who don't know him, you know, whatever. I just mean to say I don't think he, he's not the kind of guy I would think that um, that I'd be rooting against. You know, uh, he has to win these fights and he's got to earn his own keep. And that's the way the fight game goes. I think he should probably be able to get it done. But I think a lot of people have the wrong idea about him. And maybe some of that is his fault. Maybe some of it isn't. But I think he's a good kid. He's still just 26. I'm really not ready to write him off in any capacity whatsoever. Yeah, I heard the guys from the Severe MMA podcast say the same sort of thing about uh, James. That uh, what you see on camera is very different from what you see behind the scenes. I mean, people say the same thing about Colby Covington, and people can choose to dislike uh, people, you know, uh, as they see fit. I mean, that's what what makes this sport interesting. But they were talking about just how humble of a a guy he is, how generous he is, um, and that that kind of persona that he's put on is not really what the people who know James Gallagher uh, feel about about him as a person. So, uh, you know, I I love to hear that kind of thing, and I'm very eager to see what, what we can get from him this this uh, week, this Friday, rather, uh, in South Dakota, because I think that his story is a very, very good one, and th- this could be a really good redemption spot for him. Uh, also on this card, you have Sydney Outlaw returning after a loss to Tufik Musayev. He'll be taking on Islam Mamadov. Jeez, they just keep giving this guy hammers. For folks who don't know, Sydney Outlaw ended up beating Roger Huerta. He did lose to Michael Chandler, but then he beat Adam Piccolotti, a black belt who used to be at AKA, now with CSA. He beat Miles Jury, former Miles Jury UFC guy who had a big name. Then he loses to Tafik Musayev. He comes back and they give him Islam Mamadov. Islam Mamadov, just uh, 34 years of age, which he's a little bit up there, but has only lost to Benson Henderson via split in Bellator. Otherwise, he's just been blowing through basically everyone, including he, uh, he beat Brent Primus. That's a tough fight on on this card as well. But I got to tell you, the one that like I like the most, dude, you go down this card all the way down, and it's nothing but interesting fights. We have to talk very briefly about Jordan Oliver making his MMA debut at 145, taking on Andrew Triolo. No, Andrew Triolo is 
his record, according to what I'm looking at, is 0-1-0. and um, You know, not exactly the most distinguished beginning, but Jordan Oliver, I mean, I could go on and on about what this guy has done in wrestling. This was a huge get for Bellator to get this guy, making his pro debut. Um, big deal. 33 years of age, still some time to do something in this weight class, which I believe is going to be 145. I'll double-check that. Uh, do you have any thoughts about Jordan Oliver? Do you have any thoughts about the rest of this card? Yes, 145. Yeah, Jordan Oliver's been teasing this for like five or six years about taking the plunge in MMA. I'm glad he's finally doing it and a good signing by Bellator. It seems like they're getting a lot of these kind of grassroots wrestlers uh, early on. I mean, even Dalton Rasta wasn't a big name in collegiate wrestling, but somebody who in the training room at ATT was just absolutely massacring people from what I understand. And that's why he got signed to Bellator. So they've got a really good scouting department or whatever that is at Bellator at finding a lot of these uh, these, these really highly touted prospects and bringing them in and putting them against kind of equal level opponents at this stage in their career and building them up slowly. Now, it hasn't worked for some of their signings, like Ed Ruth, for example, I feel uh, kind of didn't deliver. I thought that he could be a future champion in Bellator. Um, you know, sometimes a lot of these wrestlers that do transition to um, MMA uh, they, they do have a ceiling, but in other cases, you look at like Aaron Pico, I think he still has the capacity to become a future champion, uh, especially with, uh, we found out, uh, I think today or yesterday, that Patricio Pitbull is going to be out for about a year, uh, has herniated discs, so I wouldn't be surprised mm. to see uh, perhaps a Pico and Jeremy Kennedy rematch for that vacant, uh, or, or sorry, interim title at 145 pounds. Um, but I, I do love seeing a lot of these, uh, these signings, and uh, you know, while you did kind of gloss over Steve Mowry and Moldovsky, and say he didn't like that fight. I know they're kind of running it back, but I'm excited for that one. I love watching tall Steve Mowry do his thing. He's a pretty sizable underdog here, which which surprises me because I think he's a really solid fighter. Um, so that's one that kind of stands out to me. And, and just a lot of really good prospects. Uh, you know, Jalen Bates has been a really good prospect for them, but now he's facing a really seasoned Enrique Barzola. He hasn't fought an opponent of this caliber uh, just yet. So that's interesting. Sullivan Colley, another uh, great prospect. Lucas Brennan, uh, you know, we're, we're seeing a lot of these up-and-coming Bellator fighters. And the one thing that I give Scott Coker and the Bellator brass a ton of credit for is that in the um, Rebney era, and I would even say early into the Scott Coker era, the prelims were very, very much skippable. Like, you could, you could get to a Bellator card, watch the main card, and you'd see uh, the best of what they have to offer on their roster. It's not, hasn't been like that for the last couple of years where they've really stacked cards from top to bottom and put a lot of really intriguing fighters and prospects on the prelims that make you want to tune in from start to finish. So, I, you know, I, I tip my hat, my hat to, um, you know, Mike Kogan and, uh, and Scott Coker and, and the Bellator Brass for, for really building up the roster in a way that allows them to have th these really solid fight cards from top to bottom. Yeah, just as a reminder for folks who don't know who Jordan Oliver is, two-time national champion out of Oklahoma State, he won the he he won the uh, senior national title, which is of course once you graduate college and you do freestyle wrestling at 65 kilos in 2019. So uh, he didn't win any Olympic medals, but at the folk style, which is the one that most closely correlates to MMA, he was a two-time national champion, which is pretty great. And I also agree with you. I think that the prelims have gotten significantly better over the years. This is a great example of it. Um, also wanted to point out, I, I, Steve Mowry is tall. Steve Mowry is tall. I'm not here to talk poorly about Steve Mowry. I'm just going to say that fight doesn't super interest me. But here's some other names we didn't even mention. Leandro Ego is on the prelims, taking on Nikita uh, Mikhailov. I'm sure I'm saying that wrong in every way possible. Also, former uh, Golden Gopher, University of Minnesota, Michael Blockus is making his pro debut on this card. He wrestled for them for four years as well. You mentioned Sullivan Colley and some other ones as well. Also, Diana Av Saragova, 
who is BC's favorite fighter in Bellator, if I do so say myself, taking on UFC veteran Justine Kish. Um, yeah, there's just a shit ton of fights on this card that are worthy and of your forget, time. We'll see what happens. Don't forget. Shout out to Josh Hill, Canadian. He did commentary for BTC this past weekend, a regional promotion uh, based here in uh, southern Ontario, and dives right into the cage in Bellator this, this weekend. So shout out to gentleman Josh Hill. Very good. Let's go to topic number three here, if we can. Conor McGregor tweeting out some folks. Now, Dana White threw some cold water on this last night, but let's put up these tweets. So Connor was, boy, he was, he goes on these Twitter sprees, does he not? And uh, someone asked him, hey, why is the fight with Mike Chandler not interesting to you? And he wrote, quote, I'll do it if they want, no prob. I don't think they want him no more, though. There's loads of juicy fights around, uh, and my return date is my return date. I never gave an F about who it was ever. I'll fight anyone. I'll even fly to them. Ask Malinaji. Ross, still surfing off the Malinaji fame. Flown in and bet around. And then Michael Chandler kind of responded, this dude, I remember when his words held an immense amount of weight. Just tell the truth. Now, you watched Dana White do his post-fight uh, media uh what do you want to call it? Availability. Anyway, he spoke to the media afterwards. What did he tell the media about Michael Chandler and Conor McGregor? And then how do you interpret all of this? Well, he said that uh, the fight's still on. He says that, you know, he spoke to Conor a day or two ago and that Conor's ready to fight and that uh, Chandler will still be the opponent. So here's my question. Like, before we find out what's going on with him and USADA, should we be speculating on this? Like, if he's expected and USADA has said they expect him to be in the pool for six months before he can resume competition in the UFC. Like, why are we talking about all of these different Conor McGregor scenarios when there's really no timetable for his return until he submits the paperwork and gets back in the USADA pool? Like, you know, we're talking, again, six months. Like, what's six months from now? We, we basically know almost every main event of the pay-per-views from now until the end of the year. Are they going to try to somehow sneak him onto this December card and, and find a way around the, the six-month you saw the stipulation? I don't know, but like it's hard to really gauge what any of this is without knowing what his timetable for return is and knowing what's going to happen with you saw and him being in the pool for six months. And I think it would be a really bad look if he does somehow circumvent the six month you saw the requirement to get back in the pool and, and resume testing. I, I honestly do. And I think that that's going to be something that a bad. Um, hold on. Let me stop you there. A bad look for who? For everybody. <laughs> I mean, for, for USADA, for the UFC, and for Connor. I think it's a terrible look. Beca Why? Because the, if, if you're going to put guidelines together with USADA, like you, you guys are going to sit with USADA and say, these are the guidelines that we're putting together, that the expectation is, and they made Henry Cejudo do this, that you're going to be in the, if you're going to return from retirement, from, you know, which is what this is at the, at the moment, is a retirement uh, based on uh, the letter of the law, that he's going to have to be in the pool for six months. Um, and people compare it to the Brock Lesnar situation, but people have to remember with the Brock Lesnar situation, that wasn't a retirement that he was coming out of. He had never tested in USADA prior to that. So that was the equivalent of a new signing. So everybody points to this clause with Brock Lesnar and that they made him waive it. But if they sign someone off the street to do a short notice fight against somebody on Saturday and they've never fought in the UFC before and never been in the USADA pool before, that's a, a similar situation to Brock Lesnar. Um, not having the six months. There was really nothing that made them have to uphold six months for Brock Lesnar that was in their paperwork um, that, that compares to anybody else being signed off the street to fight in less than six months uh, that hadn't been in the USADA pool before. So that's kind of the misnomer that, with that comparison to Brock Lesnar that everybody has with, with McGregor. Um, the, the best yeah, comparison the is thing. Henry Cejudo, who came Aaron. back and here's did the, the six thing. months. 
I agree that I agree they're not identical. There are definitely some different mechanisms. And also that was UFC 200. UFC was trying to throw like everything they could at that card. You know, remember how remember how stacked that card was where like Dillashaw yeah. versus before Jones and uh and DC fell off. It was a massive Yeah, well, I mean card. even even then Dillashaw even was on then the they got Anderson Silva. Yeah, yeah, even then they got Anderson Silva to fly in on 48 yeah. hours notice. It was just this most insane thing. So th- these are very different circumstances, no denying, but like there isn't anything stopping UFC from overriding this if they want to contractually. Your fellow uh, Canadian Eric McGrocken, the combat sports lawyer, has sort of looked over this and says if they want to give him a pass, they have the contractual leeway to do so. And I think that's I mean, I sort of see your larger point, which is like, where until we, this is resolved, why are we even talking about this? I get that as well, but they're not precluded from doing that. They can pull that trigger if they want. Yeah, they absolutely can. But then what? Then like, what? What's your answer? If I if I were to ask Jeff Novitsky, why did you do this? Why is this allowed? Like, what's his answer going to be? And I, I don't know if they can give a one that is, um, you, you know, that makes sense and that is something that the public will accept without really compromising this entire anti-doping uh, program that they put together. Um, and I know that you have your reservations about the anti-doping program as a whole and, and what its utility is, but if you're gonna put this together and you're gonna lay out the guidelines, like if you're gonna override all of these things in those guidelines, like what's the purpose of it to begin with? So, you know, I, I believe that the USADA program has cleaned up the sport, to, you know, to, to a large degree in terms of the, the UFC. Um, you may disagree with that, but I actually believe that we're seeing a you know very very few legitimate you know drug test failures for um, you know real you know hardcore steroids and drugs that w- will give you a real performance edge and most of those tests are are new signees um, that are coming in that d- don't disclose that they had prior use uh, before that and they end up getting burned and have to sit out two years of their career so you know I think that that's what's what makes this a uh, an interesting situation, and I'm curious to see how it develops because I think it would be a really bad precedent to set. Have you thought about like uh, what it, what this? Like, okay, how do I ask this question? Have you, have you really thought about and like, do you have like a idea in your mind about what this looks like as it ultimately gets resolved? In other words, that they don't pull the trigger on their ability to bypass the six months, that they do stick to the six month window and what that means for a return, and then who the opponent is the return. Like, do you have a feeling about how, what's the end game here? What does it look like in your mind? Well, we're in the eighth month of the year. So if, if they're gonna have six months from now, what are we looking at? We're looking at um, January, I think February, we're probably looking at for six months. UFC 300 is gonna be in March. So maybe the timetable's just been pushed a little bit. Because I know they're going to want to stack that card, and you stack that card with Conor McGregor. Interesting. Yeah, they could do that. They could do that. Yeah, I don't know what they're going to do. I don't know how this is all going to shake out. I don't know what the story is going to be. I haven't. I can't figure out an end game here as well because I think your general point is correct, which is if they do end up bypassing everything for Conor, I don't think there would be any punishment at the box office, but it would potentially damage morale around what some people have is in terms of the faith in the anti-doping system that they have to your point like they brought on oh, themselves like the box office whatsoever let's be clear no no that. yeah I I don't, mean, that's the yeah, reason yeah, they they're, would they're, circumvent they're, it is because money talks right 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 so in the end that would look good but uh I, you're right like what would they say here's what i just come back to though like it's like what promoters always do promoters in the end always end up making not always I'll, that's not right 
usually end up making a choice that is the more beneficial one to their bottom line, and then they just have to find ways to explain why they abandoned previous rules or norms. And then most people bitch about it for a while, and then they just kind of move on. Um, I don't know that. I, let me be clear. I'm not predicting that will happen because I don't really know. I don't have a strong sense. And your point about UFC 300, I think, is well taken. But I wouldn't rule it out. I definitely wouldn't rule it out. Yeah, I, I'm not ruling it out whatsoever. It could certainly happen, but I, I, I just don't know how they can re like recover the credibility of, of the program if they're willing to just brazenly do that. That's just my opinion. And I think that um, we're going to have to see how it goes. I think that saving it for UFC 300 would be a good move. And I, I really do hope that they continue to um, make, you know, make sure Chandler is the opponent because to have him sit out for this chunk of his career expecting to get this big payday, I think the only thing that you could say to him is, Let's hold off. We're going to do this at UFC 300. Connor needs a six months uh, of, of clean testing. And UFC 300 could be our biggest event ever. You're going to get uh, a cut of the pay-per-views for facing Connor McGregor. Like, that, that's a massive potential payday for Michael Chandler if that's how this, this comes together. Because I think they kind of owe Michael Chandler now. They, they don't really owe anybody. We saw what happened with this Wonder Boy thing yesterday. I, I'm not sure if we're going to touch on that. But at the same time, I think that uh, Michael Chandler has done everything that's been asked of him to, to make sure that he continues to secure this matchup with, with Conor McGregor. Oh, we can in just a minute, but let's first go to topic number four, which is we do have a main event for UFC 293 finally. So I guess the story here is that Sean Strickland, they didn't know if he was going to be able to get a visa in time in order to make this happen, but it turns out he probably has done it now. The UFC announced it. There was previous reports of it. It's going to be Israel Adesanya taking on Sean Strickland. This is your main event for UFC 293, I want to see if I can find the odds. I don't have any yet. I'm going to guess if they do have odds, they are substantially in the favorite of... Uh, yeah, they do have them. Yeah. Bandle's got um, a minus places 430 have for Israel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He is a three, huge favorite in a lot of ways, which I understand. Let me ask the question this way. Listen, the UFC, if you think about it this way, right? It really depends on how you want to look at this. If you want to look at it as, hey, the UFC has a very crowded calendar and they wanted things to go a certain way. They weren't able to get it because obviously they wanted Drickus Duplessis to turn around to get this fight after beating Robert Whitaker, but he wasn't able to make it happen. You know, this is their, this is not their A game. This is by definition their B game. This is what they had to resort to because their top plan didn't work out. Hey guys, if this is not your top uh, choice, you still have a guy in Sean Strickland who is a, an experienced, I would say, um, credentialed middleweight taking on it's a fresh challenge by the way for the guy who just recaptured his belt so that's good and you get to have a guy who's native to the oceanic region headlining if this is your backup plan hey that's a pretty good backup plan that's one way to look at it the other way to look at it is dude how did we get so late that on august 8th because now august 9th they announced a pay-per-view main event which is basically only a month later on September 10th for a very important market that they have that's growing with arguably uh, uh, one of their fighters who's not only a champion, but with his last win entered the stratosphere in terms of popularity and like star turn. How did we get so late in the day with all this? Which side of the debate do you come down on in interpreting this? Well, I guess they were trying to, like you said, go through that legal red tape of, of the visa situation and passport situation of, of Sean Strickland in order to make sure that they could do this before they would announce it. Um, but yeah, I mean, the co-main event was it was announced yesterday as Tai Tuivasa against Alexander Volkov. So 
I don't really think there was a backup plan here, which is the kind of scary thing about this. Like, what what would they have done otherwise? I guess you could have done Israel versus Cannoneer too. But again, we're a month away from the card. Um, I'll say this. I think this is going to be a fun fight. Like, the fight itself, I'm really looking forward to. The lead up to the fight, I think, is going to be very, very, very cringy. And I, I think it's something I'm not really looking forward to. And the other thing about it is Australia as a country, um, and I guess you could say New Zealand as well, you know, they they have been very, very hesitant to accept mixed martial arts uh, as an acceptable, I guess, so to speak, sport in, in their country. Um, now, I know Sydney and Sydney tourism and, and everything have done a lot to secure these UFC events. I think it's what uh, an event every for the next four years and two of them are pay-per-views or something along those lines um, that are going to bring championship bouts to Sydney. Obviously, having Israel as the headliner, you know, outside of maybe Volk is their best case scenario, given that Volk is from Australia. Uh, I think that, um, you know, if you're going to bring Sean Strickland there to do media and all of this stuff in Australia, is that going to change the the perception of, of the sport in the country? Maybe they don't care. Maybe it's just some politicians that are, you know, getting their panties in a bunch about this sort of thing um, when it comes to mixed martial arts being, uh, say, a barbaric sport or something like that. Although rugby is, you know, I think uh, a fairly, uh, you know, fairly, I wouldn't say barbaric sport, but a sport that takes a very similar toll on the body of the athletes that is widely accepted. They're same with Aussie rules football. Uh, but I digress from, from that argument. Uh, I think that um, that's going to be a really strange lead up is all I've got to say about this particular pairing. But I think the fight itself is going to be a lot of fun with both these guys staying on the feet. Strickland's going to try to implement his style against Israel and we'll see how it goes. Um, I, I'm actually very eager to see this as a matchup. Yeah, I, I, I don't know what to do because if you're the UFC, you've got so many masters to serve in terms of their content schedule, 40 plus events a year. Um, it's just hard to do that with visa complications, injuries, illnesses, cancellations of any kind who the hell knows it's very difficult to do any of that so on the one hand i do think if this is i, I like you i initially had asked the question hey which side of the debate do you come down on i mean i think both things are true for a b game for a b plan it's a pretty fucking good b plan like there's not a lot of promotions who could pull something out like this as a backup plan and do really well so that's kind of interesting on the other hand i do also think it underscores that the ufc's calendar is this very even for them and the amount of guys they have on the roster like why did they sign you know all five winners last night not to say that these guys could sub in at the headlining role but rather they need a, they need all hands on deck they need all hands on deck to be able to fulfill all of the requirements to put out the events that they're contractually able to are required rather i should say to put out. So I think that's where we end up. You you raise such an interesting and great point, Aaron, about the state of Australia and New Zealand. And of course, it's not one thing or the other, depending on what territory or what politician wants to make an issue of it. But they do have a bit of a backwards attitude relative to the United States or Canada, we should say, North America, how about, in terms of their acceptance of MMA, even if they accept other sports that are equally violent. But the part that comes up to me is like, Here's the difference. I remember at the time when this country felt that way about MMA, where half liked it or what half didn't, or, you know, it was polarizing, but the people who didn't really didn't. And then Frank Mir was supposed to fight Brock Lesnar, and he had said he hoped Brock was going to be the first death in the octagon. And they removed him from his commentary role at WEC for that. And it was a kind of a big deal at the time. Now, I don't know that Sean Strickland's going to be wishing death on anyone, but, you know, I mean, his edgelord act is out there, to put it quite mildly. He has a range of opinions that are, you know, to call them outside the Overton window is putting it mildly. 
boy, they would not have done that. They would not have put a guy like that in that role if this were 15 years ago in the United States. They simply wouldn't do it. Not possible. They're going to do it there, I guess, because they kind of have to in a certain way. And I guess they're just going to decide to roll the dice. But I will tell you this much. The UFC feels much less uh, encumbered by the negative attitudes towards it, whether they're fair or unfair, than they used to. Because I can tell you, they used to never do something like this. And now they're just going to. I think they feel like they're just not really encumbered by it in the way that they maybe once felt. Yeah, I, I think that I agree with that. And I think that we're looking at the 30th year of the UFC right now. It's a household name. You know, a lot of, more people identify with UFC than MMA, if you were to say those three initials to, to just the every person. Uh, I, I think that they, they have decided that what people say about them from here, it's just, it doesn't really matter to them. I mean, they're, they're making record profits year over year. They've obviously established themselves as a sport globally. Uh, they're, I think from a global standpoint, one of the uh, the biggest sports in the world in terms of global popularity, where you know you look at rugby in Australia, it's not what it is here in North America. You look at American football here, and, and it's got basically no presence uh, outside of uh, North America. So I think that the UFC have grown this massive global brand that if politicians in Australia don't really uh, accept it, but you've got like the the tourism board of Sydney that are that are you know throwing money at you to hold events at them you know sorry in Sydney for the next four years or whatever it is that maybe you just take the good with the bad and I I think that you know you can't really put a leash on Sean Strickland that uh, it's shown we we've seen that time and time again that he's just going to say whatever it is that he wants to say whenever he wants to say it and that's uh, you know kind of what his cachet is but at the same time he's a he's a fun fighter to watch an exciting fighter to watch in my opinion from a technical standpoint. Um, he fights anybody, anytime, and he's, he's never shied away from, uh, any fight that they've thrown at him. And I think he's earned this opportunity. So from a fight standpoint, I think this really is the best case scenario for a main event, given the parameters that they have right now. When you look at all of the other title fights that, uh, in the title pictures, really in the other divisions, there, there really wasn't a whole lot to choose from. And if you can get somebody who's as big as Israel in the region, you can put him against anybody. But I think having a fresh opponent in Strickland is uh, is a solid matchup that, again, from an X's and O standpoint, I'm curious to see how it plays out. How, how much trepidation do you have about the press conference, though? <laughs> oh, <laughs> Just be honest. Man. But it, it doesn't matter to me. I mean, at the end of the day, I'll cover it and I'll, you know, uh, I'll watch it and all of that. But I, it's gonna, there's going to be some cringy moments. And that that is just... Listen, if I if I told you that there was going to be cringy moments at a UFC press conference, would you be shocked? Like, is that something that would surprise no. you? Yeah, but this one, I mean, I don't know. I don't know what it's going to happen. I don't know how it's going to look. Oh, it the cringeometer is going to perhaps break during this one. I mean, that's what I'm. Yeah, what my it, it word. might. It might. It might. Yeah, and also just you know, just the. I mean, I guess we'll see what happens in the end. I don't know, but uh, I'm less interested in the fight itself, though. I, I. I you people have said I saw someone on Twitter the other day saying this felt this feels like Connor Diaz won, which I have to tell you it does not in any way, shape, or form. <laughs> but what I would say is there are people who are too easy to dismiss Sean Strickland in this one. Now, to be clear, I favor the champion and probably by a considerable distance. But there are ways in which I think Strickland can disrupt his rhythm. Uh, I think there are ways in which Strickland can make this a little bit more competitive and maybe even, by the way, like in ways that Strickland fights, it brought out the violent side of uh, Alex Pereira. I can see that happening for Izzy. I can also see a case where 
the way in which Strickland fights brings out a more reserved side of Izzy as well, in which case you just you get Izzy being better but not like going for the kill. That could have that's that's on the table here too. So I don't know exactly what kind of fight we're gonna get. I just have a hard time seeing Strickland overcome Izzy in the end. That's the part that I that's the part that I just can't really wrap my head around. Well, I mean, I think that it's gonna be a matter of distance. Like if if Strickland can pressure him and pressure him and pressure him and, and stay in that kind of close proximity where he lands those big jabs and he he lands uh, you know the the volume striking that has made him so successful in this division um, and and really tries to drown Israel with strikes. That's what I'm curious to see is like how will Israel answer that? And I mean Israel is such a a wizard on the feet that I'm sure he already has an answer for this in his head. But uh, in practicum, I'm curious to see how it plays out. Like I want to see if Sean Strickland can utilize the game plan that we know we know what Sean Strickland's game plan is. Everybody knows what it is going into a fight. It's always pretty much been the same and it's been very successful for him. So what what is Israel going to see in advance of this that he can take advantage of? And I think that that's what, what makes this so much fun to watch is because when Israel solves that puzzle, that is always what brings out the best in Israel. And I think that th- this isn't the toughest puzzle to solve when you're looking at it from the outside, looking in as Israel. But when you actually have Sean Strickland coming forward and throwing strikes at you and, and trying to suffocate you with volume, it, it becomes a different story. And I think that that's what makes this such an interesting fight. And I think it's going to be a fight that, that, that's going to be exciting. And and uh, Israel's fights, sometimes when you look at him against like a cannoneer, for example, and he has to solve that puzzle and sometimes kind of has to abandon the the excitement level, so to speak, or the entertainment value, I don't think this fight is going to be like that. I think that this fight has a, a lot of the makings to make it a very, very entertaining fight. All right, real quickly, I'm going to have to punt on our original topic number five because we just don't have time to get to it. Quickly, you did raise something before about the Wonder Boy situation. So let's back up a step. Wonder Boy was set to fight Michelle Pereira now, I think, almost two weeks ago, 10 days ago, whatever it was. Pereira misses weight and Wonder Boy, like by, you know, a few pounds, actually. And then and then Wonder Boy says, you know, I'm just not going to take this fight on short notice against a guy or not short notice. I'm not, I'm not going to take a fight against a guy who missed weight at this stage of my career. And there's there was some uproar. As we explained to fans, like there's nothing I've ever I've not seen every single UFC contract, Aaron, but I've seen I can say that every single UFC contract that I have seen all have the same provision, which is there's no such thing as show and win money in the language. It is merely purse and bonus. And purse, you are entitled to it upon bout completion. So if you and I are scheduled to fight and I miss weight and you didn't, there's just nothing in in your contract that will force the UFC to pay any amount. You have to just basically rely on generosity, which at times can work, at times it can't. Dana White spoke about this yesterday. Why don't you tell the folks what he said about it and then give me your interpretation of this entire ordeal. Yeah, so he basically said you can't just come to fight week make weight, your opponent misses weight, and then you say, no, I just don't want to fight. You know, he could have gotten a percentage of, of uh, Pereira's purse on top of his um, show money, as we'll call it. I mean, I think that that's one thing you've done a really good job of clearing up recently since this, this whole thing has, has happened is like part of the MMA nomenclature is like people are using show and win, and that's not really what it is. But when you hear show, it's like, well, you show up, you do your job, you make weight, you get on that scale, you're ready to go, and your opponent doesn't do that. You should be get your get your show money, but based on the language of the contracts, that's not really uh, how it works. So Dana White basically said, you know, he there was some other stuff that happened behind the scenes. He turned down kind of another short notice opponent. If you want to do some math, what's a big name 170 pound fight that just fell off that's coming up in the in next couple of weeks? Kelvin Gastelum against Shavkat Rachmanov. 
maybe that's the fight that got turned down. And uh, if you're Wonder Boy, I, I kind of don't blame you for turning that fight down, although he did have a full camp. Uh, for Pereira, to get prepared for that kind of a fight, it's uh, a very, very different stylistic matchup than, than uh, Michelle Pereira. So I think that maybe that was the fight he turned down. I do think, though, that a fight with Usman, if that is going to come together for October, which has been thrown around. And when I spoke to uh, Ali Abdelaziz last week, that was something that he had mentioned was a, a possibility. He would like to see the Gastelum and Shavkat fight get rebooked um, as well. I, I'm curious to see exactly uh, what they're going to do with Wonderboy. And Dana White did say by this weekend, we should have it figured out. So I don't think that this story is over just yet. But at the same time, like, the part that kind of irks me and I think a lot of the MMA fans is that Wonderboy has been such a good soldier for the UFC. He's one of the nicest guys in the sport. Might be the nicest guy in the history of the sport. It's just when you sit down and talk to Wonderboy, he talks to you like he's known you for, for years and years and years. He's just that kind of guy. He's personable. He's, uh, uh, you know, humble. He's fought for, for the title on multiple occasions and done what the UFC's asked of him. He does all kinds of different promotional appearances. T to see them kind of, you know, stiff him, so to speak, and not pay him at least something. For making that weight, I think is uh, you know troubling to a lot of fans when you look at the kind of guy the Wonder Boy is. But I think again, it's about setting precedence, and that's why these kind of things I think need to be dealt with behind closed doors. If you're a, a fighter, um, I don't I don't mean to say that he shouldn't be talking to media and say that he hasn't gotten paid yet or anything like that, because I think that, that sometimes you do want to try to get that sort of leverage. But sometimes I think that can work against you in circum uh, certain circumstances. And Dana White was uh, I think out of town when that whole thing played out on vacation for his birthday or whatever it was. Um, and maybe he should have waited for the dust to settle a little bit before um, he or his management said that he didn't get paid any any money uh, for that situation. Maybe he would have gotten something. But at the same time, it's not really how it should work. Yeah, I mean, I more or less agree with that. I, I don't really know what the right answer is. Like one way would be just raise fighter pay overall. So some of these circumstances would because like there's no promoter in boxing who's going to like generously just pay you for fi not fighting when you turn it down, although you'll still see guys in boxing turn opponents down when opponents miss weight all the time. That's actually much more common over there. Is that a function of culture? Is that a function of financial independence? I don't really know the answer. It's something to think about. So, you know, one way would be like if there was a trade association or a union, they would force in language being like, hey, if an opponent misses weight and then the other person doesn't want to fight, they get compensated for like just their costs, right? Like, travel maybe part of their camp you know a fraction of the purse whatever it is i don't know i don't know what the answer is but it just make feels like stiffer. uh the current make the penalties stiffer we've seen what the pfl's done you take a point away entering the fight for one of the rounds maybe a larger which i love the by the way i love that a hundred percent and i know you you often will find uh, as many ways to, to rip the pfl smart cage as possible but i think that is uh, the smart cage deducting that point i think is a very very smart move uh on behalf of the pfl yes. and something i'd like to see more and i'd like to see the commissions get behind because uh, I think that when you're in a situation like this and the fighters train so hard for a specific opponent, uh, there obviously is a big advantage for that opponent if they don't make that weight. And I think that you need to make the penalty stiffer. Uh, I personally think that is the answer if, if you want to avoid these sort of situations from taking place. And I think taking a point away um, is, is something that uh, will make fighters hesitate to, uh, to miss the weight. Well, or make it a I no mean, contest. If what. the fighter that misses weight wins, make it a no contest. Uh, or unless by stoppage or something, right? But yeah, if it goes to a decision, yeah, it'd be kind of uh, even interesting if it's, too. Even if it's by stoppage, make it a no contest. You didn't do your job. You didn't make the weight. You can still make but your. But then they your... won't say yes. Then they won't fight either. You know what I mean? Like if they if they can't if they can't win, they won't fight. Like I agree with taking a point, but well, um, you still yeah, have to. Get I, I mean, to I guess one. so because they're still they can still get a win bonus for winning even if they missed weight. So I yeah, I guess I understand that. Right. 
Uh, okay, last but not least, let's play a little bit of a game uh, with the time we have remaining. Doesn't really have a name, but we're going to call it Getting to Know Aaron Bronstetter. I've got 10 questions for you, all very simple, nothing very difficult at all. These are all just questions that you can answer for us that are going to help us, how to help the audience know you better. Now, some of this is about you, some of this is about Canada, some of this is about your version of Canada, but it's still kind of all Aaron Bronstetter in the end. Are you ready to play? I mean, I can hear the uh, live viewers leaving our YouTube stream as we speak. But yeah, you sure. Go ahead. Let's go. <laughs> uh, okay. Well, this won't take long. This won't take long. So this will be a little bit of a fun. All right. Give me, Aaron Bronstetter, the first MMA fight you ever saw in person and first one you ever saw on TV. Um, in person, I, I couldn't tell you the first fight, but I can tell you the card. It was UFC uh, 87, which was uh, headlined by... GSP and Fitch, I believe, with the co-main event of Brock Lesnar getting his first win in the UFC against Heath Herring and John Jones getting his first win in the UFC against Andre Guzmao. So that was the first card that I attended in person. The first one I watched, that's I'm really bad at remembering. That's 15 years ago today. Oh, wow. Well, there we go. 15 years ago today, I attended my, my very first UFC event. Now, the first one, well, I, I watched like UFC one or two or three, like one of the really early ones um, at a friend's yeah. house back when I was younger. That would probably be the first one that I watched. But in terms of the first one that I watched where I really started to watch consistently after that, it would have been the uh, Liddell Rampage 2. Um, I, I don't remember what number UFC that 76, was. 76, something like that? Okay. Yeah, something along those lines. That would have been the first one that really kind of got me hooked on the sport. Uh, okay, very good. Question number two. Here we go. And, you know, I know what the answer to at least one of this is going to be, but just hu humor us just the same. Top three favorite Canadian MMA fighters. Go. Should I take GSP out? I mean, GSP is going to be on there for sure. If you want, because um, I mean, you just can't make a list without GSP. So I get it, you know. All right, I'm going to say George St. Pierre. Okay. Um, I'm going to say Charles Jordan, who I, I've loved watching uh, oh, his fights. Okay. Super exciting to watch. Um, I'm trying to, to go back into the Rolodex of fighters that I like used to love watching back in the day. Um, it's just hard for me to, to... My recall isn't great with a lot of this stuff. Um, I loved watching TJ Grant fight. Like TJ Grant is probably on my list of uh, Canadians that that I love to watch. Um, yeah, I think who else who else would be on that list? I guess that's three. But like I loved watching Mark Hominick. I loved watching Chris Hordesky. I know he never made it to the uh, to the UFC. Um, dude, you know who never get comes up? But I loved it when he was around. Dennis Kang. Dennis Kang. Oh yeah, was a great Dennis fighter. Kang. And he was like considered a really top prospect coming into the UFC and. Yeah, you know, it was yep. a little bit up and down, but I mean, his pre-UFC career is really what, what the most exciting Dennis Kang exactly. moments would have been. Yeah. And also, and I mean, another guy like Antonio Carvalho, I, I thought he was amazing. He was one of the best featherweights in the world before the UFC introduced the featherweight division. He was fighting in Japan. No doubt about it. All right, let's go to number question number three. Here we go. Give me your favorite Canadian food, but like a food that has a tradition in Canada, right? So for example, here we'll have like, you know, grilled out food for July 4th. We'll have turkey on Thanksgiving. Give me like a favorite Canadian food that comes with a tradition. We don't have a ton of them. I mean, I, lo I love a good poutine, but like it feels like I've eaten a brick after having a poutine. I'm going to give like a weird <laughs> answer, like just maple syrup. Maple syrup in general is just a tremendous mm. food. Like I know it's not like a meal or anything, or like, but if, if I was to equate Canada and like food, maple syrup is like our, like our gold on the podium just because you can add maple syrup to coffee you can add it to like 
it, it's much healthier than like refined sugar and I don't eat refined sugar. So maple syrup has been like a real godsend for me when it comes to sweetening things. Um, I'm going to say maple syrup. Listen, ain't nothing wrong with maple syrup. Not a damn thing. Yeah. Love that answer. Here we go. And I mean, uh, question Canadian number four. bacon is obviously great too, but uh, don't tell the rabbi. Isn't that just that. ham? It's just fucking ham, right? You just fucking sliced ham. It depends on the, the utility. Like I wouldn't just go out and just like cook a piece of like of Canadian bacon, but having it on like with like hollandaise on like a uh, an English muffin with an egg, like it doesn't get much better. Than yeah, that. that's pretty good. Yeah, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. All right, here we go. Question four. Tell me who the best Canadian musician ever is. Well, now now you've uh, you've got me in a bad place because like I know that a lot of people like love Neil Young, um, but I'm not, I'm like not the biggest Neil Young guy. I'm trying to think, best Canadian musician ever. You and Leonard huh. Skinner. I mean, Leonard Cohen is a tremendous um, artist, but in terms of like musicianship, whereas like Leonard like Leonard Cohen isn't necessarily the best like like pound for pound musician. Um, I'm gonna punt on this one honestly because there's so many options, but like in terms of like sheer musicianship, maybe like oh, um, what about like Neil Pert? Neil Pert is like an incredible musician. Like if you're looking for just like instrumentation like that's that's probably a tough one to surpass the correct answer is justin bieber but i'll forgive you all right question okay, number five <laughs> all right we'll move on from canada after this here we go question number five which part of canada do you like the least and tell me why now i say that asking as an american who's been to canada a few times what a wonderful place love canada it's tremendous but as a canadian what part do you like the least and why well, I, I hope I don't get in trouble for saying this, but uh, it's where BC is right now, rural Quebec. You know, they're just not very friendly to me in rural Quebec. So I'm going to just say rural Quebec. And maybe I don't speak French the, well, so maybe that's why, and I just kind of feel like an outsider there. Um, but bro, that's where I've can, had like, can my you worst imagine how, as a Canadian. Can you imagine BC right now trying to fumble his fucking way through rural Quebec? Well, it's, I, I was bet he texting has had with him some advice like in advance before he went and, and giving him like a, a, dis, like a discretion and uh, he says that like his wife is uh, like just can make friends with absolutely anybody. So I said to him like just let her do the talking, and you just you don't need to make jokes to them because they're not going to like your jokes. Um, so <laughs> I, I, that that was the advice that I gave to BC uh, as he headed to uh, to rural Quebec. It's a beautiful place. Though. Like rural Quebec, rural Quebec is is stunning, and I've never been to Quebec City, and I've always wanted to go. So um, yeah, maybe it's just like I've, I've only had a handful of experiences there as a whole. But every Canadian I, what, major city actually, I've been to, I've really liked. Yeah, I agree on that one as well. I've been to Tadoussac in rural Canada. I think that's rural rural Quebec. And I went and saw whale watching there, which was pretty incredible. And my, But the thing is, my dad speaks French, so we kind of got around no problem. But uh, it is beautiful. It is beautiful. Okay, here we go. Uh, you're one of the nicest guys, as all Canadians are known for being friendly. But tell me something that you just know. You know you have an irrational hatred for. What is it? An irrational, well, I hate traffic, but I think everybody kind of, that's like a rational hatred, right? Um, right, but does it send you into, like, how quickly do you get angry about it is really the question. Oh, very, very quick. Like, I'm, I'm an angry driver. Like, I will, I hate sitting in traffic <laughs> to, like, a degree. Like, I would never be able to live in, like, L.A. First off, I live in Toronto where traffic is horrible, and I, I will do whatever it takes to avoid rush hour traffic. Like, I, I, I hate driving yes. in rush hour to, like, an irrational degree. Like, I just, I don't like sitting there especially if I have kids in the car. Like, at least if I'm on my own, I can just do a podcast or something. I still hate it even then. But, uh, yes. yeah, bad traffic. Like, I, I, I can't do bad Dude, traffic. Dude, I'm, I'm, with, I'm with you completely. Like, I and can't live in a place like, that... Traffic is terrible. 
Traffic's terrible, but I don't ever engage with it on rush hour. I take public transportation. I bike. Sure. I walk. You know what I mean? Like, I don't like people are like, I'm going to drive cross country. I hope I crash in the first five minutes and die. No interest whatsoever. All right. Here like, we go. I, I live near the train station. So, like, I can get downtown in rush hour in like 35 minutes. The idea of I had to drive downtown like a handful of times in the morning, like during the morning commute. Um, from where I live, and I live about 35 minutes out of out of downtown Toronto, and it was just like dreadful. Like I, I, I was like, people do this every day, and I, I don't know how they do it. Like I don't know how they have the patience for it. Same in the states. All right, here we go. Again, you got to play the game with me. Here we go. Ready? Say something mean about Brian Campbell. Um, something mean about Brian Campbell. Well, he likes a lot of like really mid 70s music, like very like, <laughs> like uh, middle of the road like 70s classic rock that like you would hear on like FM stations that uh, yeah, that's probably the worst thing I can say about BC. Like BC, oh, BC like so gravitates towards a lot of MOR music. What's MOR? Oh, middle, middle of, of the road. road. Like MOR, road. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right, here we go. Uh, how about this? And this can open up anything in any direction. Tell me your favorite sports moment of your life. Now, this could be either you participating in one thing, watching something, whatever. Your favorite sports moment of your life. What is it? The most joy I got from a singular sports moment was Joe Carter's three-run home run that sealed the World Series. I mean, if you if you're lived in Toronto and you were alive during that time, like that's probably got to be your answer. I, I don't think there's ever been like a better moment in the history of Toronto sports than the Joe Carter three-run shot. All right. I don't watch baseball, so I don't know much about that, but I will take I don't either, but it. back then I loved baseball. Like I was a baseball fanatic from like age like five to like 11. And that happened yeah. during that time. So like that, yeah. like, I, I was running funny. around, I was I, screaming. I woke my sister up. Like I, I was like, that's about as much elation as I've ever felt from a moment in sports. All right. Um, question number nine. We're almost done here. What's the best boxing match you've ever seen? Best boxing match I've ever seen. Um, I'd have to say Jake Paul versus Nate Diaz. <laughs> no, no, I, I really, I really, I really hope you know I was. All right, I really hope you know I was joking there. Um, best boxing match I've ever seen. Um, I mean, this could be Tyson. It could be anything you see, saw on YouTube. Probably just Gaddy like Ward. One... I, I don't remember which which Gaddy oh, Ward right. fight I watched, but probably Gaddy Ward. Yeah, I mean, does it matter? They're all like, good, which, right? So, I'm just yeah. trying to remember which of them it is, but like, it's one of them. <laughs> all right, here we go. So this is one question in five, but it's a speed round. So you just got to give me an answer, okay? Metallica or Guns N' Roses? Metallica. Correct answer. Hot dogs or hamburgers? Hamburgers have more versatility. I'll go hamburgers. Ooh, you're two for two. Here we go. And this is tough. Just regular fries or poutine? Oh, poutine. Wrong answer. Poutine, overrated as shit. <laughs> F1 or NASCAR? Uh, I don't really have an affinity for either, to be honest. I'd say F1. <laughs> I, I don't watch either, That's so all... I think I'd enjoy the F1 answer is either. Yeah, the answer is either F1 or nothing. Uh, and then last but not least, Beyonce or Taylor Swift? Probably Beyonce. That's the correct answer as well. That is getting to know Aaron Bronstetter, everybody. Getting to know him there. Uh, AB, we got to get out of here. One more time, tell folks where they can find all of your wonderful uh, work. It's all in one place, www.aaron.report. 
links to all of my different work, links to uh, a link to vote in the World MMA Awards where you should be voting for Morning Combat for best programming and for Aaron Bronstetter for best journalist, if you see uh, that as the uh, correct uh, vote. But I, I would encourage you to do that. And uh, I do a podcast every week called the uh, TSN MMA Show. It's either one or two episodes. Sometimes I separate my, my weekly interviews. So if you want to see all of the interviews that I do, uh, or listen to all of the interviews that I do, rather, uh, the TSN MMA Show has you covered uh, all in one place. Um, so that, that's where you can find all my work. There it is. And of course, a uh, reminder to everyone, Showtime.com is the label that pays. Showtime.com, 30-day free trial. If you like it, you can keep it. If not, you can bounce. You can go to morningcombat.store for all of the merch. You can reach the show, morningcombat at gmail.com. And last but not least, worldmmaawards.com. Worldmmaawards.com. You can vote for Morning Combat for best MMA programming, and you can vote for that gentleman, Aaron Bronstetter, for Journalist of the Year. Aaron, we got to get out of here. Thank you so much for joining us. For Aaron, I'm Luke. Thanks to CBS Sports and everyone involved in the Florida office there who got the show going today, as well as Showtime and Malka and the whole nine yards. We're done. We'll see you guys later this week. And until then, may all of your gains be loyal. Representing the red, white, and blue. CBS Reality Titans. The rookies have no idea what's in store for them. Battle it out with legends of the challenge franchise. I'm going to go back in there and wreak havoc. Who has what it takes to make challenge history? I don't care if you won seven times. I'm winning today. The Challenge USA. New season Thursday on CBS.